The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Fickendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Kate Spider. This is the Mojo Radio Show, where I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. But it just won't work on you. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. Robbo, great Rocktober, but we, <laughs> we have filled up with premium diesel in the bus and we are full gas for summer. Is that right? The rock is still in November, really, isn't it? With the guests we've got lined up and everything else. Yeah. Well, and that's why we have got premium diesel. And I, I honestly am humbled by the lineup of guests we have to come for the end of this year and into season seven, if I could be so presumptuous to Mm -hmm. look that far ahead. But we are heading to one of the most iconic beaches in the world for at least the first part of summer. Our summer series starts soon. Our first guest, the author of Make Time, a good mate of ours, John Zaratsky. He'll join us in the mobile studio on the promenade at Bondi Beach near the pavilion and also just confirmed New York Times bestseller, James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits. Uh, he's a big one. Good guess. He's gonna get he's gonna get on board the bus down the beach. He's getting on the bus. Jeez, I better clean it up. <laughs> what? It is not gonna be easy to park the big red bus at Bondi. No. no. Hello to all the parking rangers. Yes, um, please go easy on us. <laughs> and also big news, just very quickly, we no longer have to rent the gear for the pop-up OB idea no. of Bondi, because a good mate and super supporter of the show, Adam. Heard the show a couple of weeks ago, got in touch with us through Patreon and said, no problem, no issue, it's uh-huh. done. He's bought the gear for us. So uh, as the show has no sponsors, sadly, no advertisers, sadly, hello, our friends at Doseki, um, we fund the whole thing ourselves and to get support from our friends on Patreon and people like Adam who just say, you know what, guys, we're going to make this happen. Got no money? No factor. Bought. So if you could go shopping and get... Return the return the rentals. <laughs> Taramara music, here I come. Check in hand. Hey, just quickly, um, do you reckon we could go back to Adam because the studio could really do with a new bar fridge? Do you reckon he'd be into that? <laughs> a fill bar. Wouldn't it be fun to have a... We, all we need is a rock and roll road case. We need a Mojo Radio Show road we case. We do, don't Imagine we? Imagine rolling that along the promenade full of stickers on the outside, Dead Daisies, yeah. Motley Crue, Metallica. Yeah. Do you know what else could be inside? You know, those battery-powered fridges. We could have one of those in there as well. We that put Lola cool. in there as well. Lola? <laughs> AP might even fit. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a lot to push. We need a, we need a full crew then. Yeah. Robbo's <laughs> Remarkable Facts. It's about time. Let's go. All right. 
Big, big show ahead. Very special guest. Before we do that, very quickly, remarkable fact, go. Well, our guest this week is a bit of a heavy metal fan. So I've gone with a bit of trivia about hard rockers. ZZ Top last week officially became the longest running American rock band with no member changes. 50 years they've been around. But get this, they played their first ever concert on February 10 in 1970 in Houston. When the curtain opened, there was one person in the audience and Billy Gibson has recently said, we just shrugged and pressed onwards. We took a break halfway through and went out and bought him a Coke. (laughs) (laughs) How rock and roll is that? Do you know... I love ZZ and I remember, this ties back to our summer series and we have got our own Mojo radio show, Rock Patrols. I remember on a Sunday morning going out to do Rock Patrol drops on mm-hmm. the streets of Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide in the Rock Patrols yep. and Seth and Muzza and Sweet mm-hmm. and I would be in four different trucks hooked up with CBs. And as we pulled out of Triple M in the Rock Patrols, headlights on, four of us nose to nose. It looked really, really impressive. Mm. And one of the boys would put on LaGrange by ZZ Top, <laughs> open up the CB song. and it would play through all the trucks and we would yeah, just cruise on a Sunday nice. morning out to do a drop at an event and stuff. And I, it didn't, ZZ Top LaGrange has always had a soft spot. So... We are creating our own rock patrols this mm. year mm. and they'll be taking goodies to the streets of the world. Anywhere. <laughs> 78 countries, we've got rock patrols on the street. That's right. Look out, Dubai. Here we come. Well, here it's fine. If you got the time. The Mojo Radio Show. Petition, study, sweat, blood, toil, frustration, and discipline. Discipline. There must be discipline. Discipline. Anybody who is listening to the world of podcasting will know that voice, and that voice is our guest this week. That is the voice of none other than Jocko Willink, better known, call sign Jocko, a retired United States Navy SEAL, has got one of the most popular podcasts in the world. He's a New York Times bestselling author many times over, decorated Navy SEAL, Silver Star, Bronze Star for his service in the Iraq War. He was the commander of SEAL Team 3, the famous task unit bruiser during the Battle of Ramadi. He's the co-author of a couple of books, Extreme Ownership and The Dichotomy of Leadership. He served alongside his task unit bruiser platoon commander, Leif Babin, who will be on the show next week. And he runs a management consulting firm, very, very successful, called Echelon Front. He is coming to Australia December 4 and 5. He was introduced to us by JP Donnell, Jeremiah Donnell, who works at Echelon Front, former Navy SEAL, who said, hey, you should talk to Jocko before he comes out to Australia. It is a complete honour and privilege to welcome you to the show. Jocko, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks for having me. When people meet you today and ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? I usually just say I retired from the military. I have a leadership consulting company. And that's pretty much what I leave it. I mean, most people, that's that's kind of a, um, 
that's a bland enough answer that most people won't ask any follow-up questions because it sounds pretty boring. So I leave it at that. Jocko, I've known your stuff for many, many years. What I'm intrigued by is why, why has the Jocko brand seen so much success with your podcast, your white tea, origin main books, leadership training? What, what is resonating so much between the Jocko brand and your audience? Well, if I had to try and figure it out, which I don't think I'm qualified to do, but I would say it's probably the fact that the Jocko brand is actually not a brand at all. It's just me. I'm just a person. And there's no there's no uh, sort of finish put on it. It's just who I am. And so I think maybe since people are seeing something that they actually can relate to and and connect to, that they see I'm just a regular human being and they say, oh yeah, that this guy seems to be, you know, talking to us like he would talk to his friends. That's what my podcast is like. I'm talking to talking to a bunch of people like I would talk to him in a normal conversation. I'm not putting on any airs. I'm not acting. That's just me. So I would say that the Jocko brand is not a brand at all. It's just a person and and maybe that's why it connects with people. Just something is interesting that just occurred to me when you said that I interviewed Evan Hafer from Black Rifle Coffee Company a couple of weeks ago and also his partner, Matt Best. And what was interesting about that conversation, Jocko, is that he he doesn't really have a business plan. He doesn't have any of those typical things you'd see in the corporate world. He and Matt said, we have a mission and it's mission first, not me first. And we promote our mission inside the business as well as outside the business. And there's this theme through everything they do that it's about the mission. And hearing you say that with the stuff you do, it's almost like you've adopted the same, not even strategy, the same philosophy where it's just you and your mission. And that's what you base your company and brand around. Is that a fair assessment, Jocko? You know, I know both those guys are both great guys, Evan and Matt. You know, I've I've spent some time hunting with uh, with Evan, or actually shooting shooting. We didn't go hunting, but we shot some bow and arrows. And I, I've met I've been to their their place up in Utah, here in America, and they're great guys. And I'd say there's I'd say they're the kind of guys that you know they, they were in special operations like I was. And and I think one thing that happens is you 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 end up with a very uh, open mind about what about the way your mission is going to go and so you are open to new suggestions you're ready to pivot when things change you see opportunities you exploit those opportunities so i would say if there's anything similar it's just that we both we all kind of have that mindset of hey we're gonna we're gonna keep our eyes open for opportunities when they occur we'll take advantage of them and and then what we're gonna do is we're gonna try and do a good job i mean you look at what evan does what does evan do evan tries to make good coffee I mean, the basis of his business, he's got a bunch of other things going on, but the basis of his business is he loves coffee and he and he makes the best coffee he can possibly make. And, and that's what they do. And that's what they built their business on. So I, I think that that attitude, it's like, you know, when I, when I make a supplement, I'm trying to make the best supplement I can. When I make a pair of jeans, I make the best pair of jeans I can. When, you know, my consulting company, we give people the best possible input that we can to help them with their leadership. So I think that just when you're trying to do a good job and deliver the best possible product you can, I think that turns out well, as long as there's a demand for your product. And there's always a chance that you, the product that you think people want, they don't want. And if you don't have an open mind, you won't pay attention to that. 
you, you'll just say, oh, well, no, people don't understand how bad they need this widget that I made. And, and that doesn't make people want a widget. You know, people want a widget because they want a widget, not because you want, want them to want, want the widget. So, yeah, I think it's just we all try and do a good job, try and make the best products we can. And we have an open mind when it comes to feedback. So we're a couple of minutes in. We've already got a new slogan for the studio wall there, Gaz. Everyone needs a widget. (laughs) (sighs) Jocko, is there a difference between mission and a goal? Because it's really interesting when I was thinking about talking to you, all through everything you do, it is about the mission in the military as well as Echelon Front on the podcast with Echo. Yet I also hear people, I think, confusing a goal with a mission. Are they different? I I mean, I'm sure we could look them up in the dictionary and see what the actual technical differences between the two. I I would think in my mind, you know, a a mission is something that you're trying to get done in a a bigger scheme of things, whereas a goal might be a shorter term goal that you want to reach in the next couple of days, maybe the next couple of weeks, whereas a mission is something that's driving you every single day over a longer period of time. Uh, that, that's the way I would break them out if you asked me to define them both, which I guess you just did. So yeah, I would say that your mission is the overall broad thing that you're trying to get accomplished and goals are smaller steps that should be in support of your overall mission. What makes, so you, you're coming to Australia, you're going to be here on December 4 and 5 for the muster and we'll, we're going to break that down in a second. If you are coming to Australia for the muster, you are going to brief your team for those few days to deliver upon the mission. What makes a great mission briefing? Making sure that everyone understands what the end state is and what it is that you want to make happen. So th- that's what we try. And we in the military, we call it the commander's intent. Does everyone understand what it is we're trying to achieve? To achieve? And then the other important thing that people have to understand is why they're doing what they're doing. They have to understand why it's important. They have to understand why, you know, when I talk to my my crew that's out, that's going to register people for the muster. So when, 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 when we do a muster in America, you know, we have 800, 900 people showing up. They're all showing up on one night. We want to get them all registered and checked in. And it's a, it could be a real hassle to do that. But we do it in a very efficient way. That's our goal. You know, I, we don't want anyone to have to wait more than a minute or maybe two minutes to, to check in and get registered. So what I try and t- when I talk to the crew, I say, listen, everything that you do is is going to is going to leave a memory with the people that are here. And it's going to when they see that the efficiency that you all can put out on the front lines, when they see how smoothly this stuff can be done, that gives more credibility to what when we're speaking about how to run a company. If we can't run the check in for an event. What kind of people should we be to, why would anyone listen to us telling them how to run their business? And so everyone understands that. Everyone understands, you know, on my team at the muster that they are trying to give the best possible experience to people that are coming to the muster because we want them to not be thinking about, oh, that was a long line. We want them to think, hey, that was smooth. This is smooth. This is a good event. I should listen to what these people have to say. I can take this home. We don't want them worried about anything. We don't want them stressed about anything. We want their minds to be open and ready to learn. So it's important when you're briefing a team that they understand what the mission is, what the end state is, and why they're doing what they're doing. I'm always curious with this, Jocko, because I think so many corporate companies have what they think is a mission. It looks really good in their business plan. Yet 
weeks or months after them deciding what that mission is, it's just a line in the business plan. The leader can't remember what it is. The board certainly don't know what it is. The people don't resonate with it. When you're working through Echelon Front, you create the mission. How do you how do you make it part of their standard operating procedure? How do you make it part of their everyday, every minute protocol? Because hearing you talk about even the check-in right down to the standards that all feedback to your mission. How do you go about taking a corporate company who go, hey, Jocko, life, that's really good, but it gets forgotten. It just becomes vanilla. How do you keep it at the front of their mind? Well, there's a bunch of different ways we do do that at Echelon Front. We we do we do look at their mission statement, and that's one of those things that people look at. It's just like what you said. It, oh, it becomes a piece of writing in the 12th page of their of their booklet that they give out to people and no one really reads it. No one really understands it. We, we, we look at it, we get highly critical with it. We usually come up with some mantras to go around the mission that are, are shorter, but then the, what, what the team has to do, what the team has to do is they have to keep it front of mind. And I, for a while, when I was in the SEAL teams, I, I was what's called an admiral's aide. So, um, I was the assistant to the admiral that was in charge of all the seals in America. And you know, you might that sounds like a really exciting job that he had and he was a great guy, but quite frankly what that job for him consisted of was figuring out the budget 7 years down the road, figuring out what type of allocations of support personnel we were going to have in the year 2025. I mean it was a very administrative job. Also, the acquisition of gear and equipment, the acquisition of new weapons. So these were all things that he had to look at every day. And then occasionally, you know, he would deal with stuff that was a little bit more um, happening now. And so one thing that he used to ask his staff, so, you know, he had a huge staff of hundreds of people that were out doing, doing his bidding in all these different departments. And one thing that when he was to have staff meetings, when he felt exactly what you're talking about, which is which is people losing sight of the mission, he would ask a question. He'd say, hey, let me ask you this. How does what you're talking about, how is what you're talking about going to help a SEAL platoon capture or kill a bad guy? Because really, that's what we were all there for. What we're all there for is to help a SEAL platoon go out and capture or kill a bad guy. That's that's what the that's what the whole mission is. And so when I work with companies, sometimes I'll tell that story and I'll work with a company that's let's say they're let's say they're selling insurance. And and they're selling life insurance. And what they they start looking at all these numbers, they start looking at all the 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 uh, Excel spreadsheets about where the customer base is and where their market share is. And sometimes they forget that what they're trying to do is provide people a level of security if they should happen to die for their family. And, that, and that, they, they forget about that. And when you break it down back to that simple level that, hey, what we're trying to do is we're trying to provide people with financial comfort and, and survivability if their main you know, support in their family dies. This is an incredible thing to do for people. And we should be proud to do it. We should do everything we can to, to be the best we can at it because we're really going to help people in their time of need. And when you have that mission, like you said, in your front of mind, it is very powerful all the way through the chain of command, making decisions on the front line. Because when somebody understands what the mission is, then those frontline people 
can say, hey, look, it, I, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do is help this individual take care of themselves if one of their loved one dies. That's my mission. My mission is to, isn't to try and make an extra you know, 20 basis points of money. My mission isn't to try and upsell them on something that they don't need. And that stuff will help you in the long run because as you take care of your customer, your customer gives feedback, to, your customer tells other potential customers and clients, and you end up in a position where you do better in business because you, st- you stuck and kept your, your mission front of mind. So those are the things we talk about, and they come out all the time, and, and that's what we do. Those are great questions. On questions, is, is a great leader a curious person, Jocko? Because I've heard Leif talk about the fact that in battle, in a debrief or, or a mission briefing, when you could see an opportunity, you quite often would frame a question to Leif that he would then be able to think through and answer back in order to get to the right outcome. You've just said questions a number of times in that answer. Is curiosity in your mind a good attribute for a great leader? Uh, it absolutely is. And, and what's interesting is, you know, Leif and I have talked through that story many times. And, and I always point out the fact that when I would ask Leif a question, I wouldn't be asking him a question with the sole purpose of making him see my point of view. I, w- I would actually be asking him the question from a point of humility and from a point of curiosity, to use the word you just used, of, hey, why is he doing that? Does he see something that I don't see? Does, has he been taught something along the way that I never got to learn, and maybe I could learn something from what he's doing? And then there's always a possibility that he just doesn't, he just doesn't comprehend um, what, what a better way to do what he's doing. And you know, this, the story that we talk about a lot around that is we were going through a certain block of training where you go through buildings and clear buildings. And there's, there's what's called the assault train, which is 20 guys lined up moving through the building. And generally, the officers would get told often, uh, you just get in the back of the train and you just count however many people get shot and you know make sure there's no hostages or if we get any hostages, you take care of them. So you get told, you just stay in the back of the train, you know, 20 people deep, and you just kind of let everyone else do the work. And so I, I was actually observing Leif, Leif's platoon go through one of these buildings, and he's in the back. And so I asked him, I said, hey, why are you so far in the back? And, and his answer was, you know, this is, where I've, this is always where I've been told to be. <laughs> and then I asked him another question, which is, well, do you know what's going on up front right now? Do you know where your platoon is? And he's like, no, actually, I have no idea because I can't see them because there's 19 people in between me and the front. And I said, well, do you think you can make good decisions when you have no idea where they are or, or what they're doing? And he said, no, I don't think I can make any decisions at all. And I said, well, why don't you move up further in the train and, and get somewhere where you can actually know what's happening in the front? And he said, well, I've always been told that I was supposed to be back here. <laughs> and, and I said, do you know why? And he said, well, not really. And I said, well, feel free to move up to the middle then and and see what's going on. And and that's what he did. And when he moved to the middle, he realized that, hey, he actually now knew what was going on up front. He could help help lead the direction of the clearance. And then, of course, you can go too far and you can get right to the front, in which case now you're grappling with some some enemy combatant and you're not being able to lead. So you want to find yourself in a comfortable place somewhere in the middle. 
And that's what he figured out. But my point is that although asking those questions led him to discover kind of the correct way to do things, I also was asking those questions from a legitimate point of humility and curiosity to say, hey, man, maybe he knows something that I don't know. Maybe there's some reason why he's staying in the back. And if if there is a reason, then I'd like to know it. But if not, let's figure out a better place to be. So is curiosity important for a leader? Yes. I mean, and I couple that directly with humility, which I believe is the most important quality for a leader to have. You've served, I, I would believe, under some pretty amazing leaders. And when Tim Ferriss, who started your journey with the Jocko podcast, asked you who are the great leaders you admired, you answered with Sean McFarland, Lieutenant General Sean McFarland, retired three-star general. When you think back to your time around Sean McFarland, what did you actually admire the most about Sean Jocko in your mind? Oh, he, he was a very humble guy. He listened. He wasn't an authoritarian guy. He he took input from people up and down the chain of command, and he was well balanced. You know, he's and and it's interesting. You know that the the, um, the to paint a picture of him, I don't know if you guys, have you ever heard of the TV show, Mr. Rogers? Yeah. Okay. So this real kind of gentle kind of character and the, the troops kind of jokingly called General McFarland, you know, Mr. Rogers, because that's kind of the image that he had. You know, when you think of a general or at the time he was a colonel, when you think of a full bird colonel, a commander of a brigade, you don't think of Mr. Rogers. You think of some ornery guy that's all, uh, uh, this giant charisma and, and a giant ego. And he didn't have any of those things. He was a, a very nice guy. He was a very thoughtful guy. Uh, you know, he meant business, but that's what I, that's what I liked about him. I liked the, the fact that he, he was humble. He listened. He wasn't on a high horse. He didn't care about his rank. He didn't walk around as if he was better than everyone else. He had a job to do. He did his part and he, and he was very open to input from everybody else. So it made it great to work for him. We had a great working relationship and, and I certainly admire the guy and, and I appreciate him for what he did for America. What was you like away from the battleground, Jocko? So when you were in your downtime, was there any difference in him away from the mission briefing room, the battleground to being in a relaxed state? What, what, what was he like? No, I, no, I, no, he's the same. You know, he's super nice guy. I mean, I, I just saw him recently and, it was like we were having the same type of conversations we'd be having when we were in the Battle of Ramadi. It was, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I think that, you know, again, going back to this idea of a person being a brand, you, you know, I don't think that, I don't think that this, this character, this character of him being open and being humble and listening to people, I don't think it was a show that he was putting on. I think it was just, a, just, just who he is. And, you know, that's what he was like when he, whether we were talking about the next, the next phase of operations we were going to conduct in this battle of Ramadi or whether, you know, he was asking me about how my guys were doing and whatever, one of them just had a kid or whatever the case may be. It's just a, a genuine, genuinely nice person. In the most recent book you did with Leif Babin, your buddy, the dichotomy of leadership, there were two lines that I picked out. One was not preparing for likely contingencies is to set the team up for failure. When proper contingency planning does not take place, 
it's a failure of leadership. I've heard guests on the show before talk about red teams, which is a tactic that people employ to look for potential breaches in the plans. Is that something that you used, Jocko, and is it something that you would still use today in Echelon Front or the muster here in Sydney in December? Is is red teaming or a version of that something you would do to plan for possible breaches and and create contingencies? We're we're constantly looking we're constantly looking at a plan and assessing what could go wrong. That's 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 absolutely something we do. We don't go overboard with it because you can you can come up with so many contingencies that you don't have time to plan anything else because all you're doing is contingency planning. But if you look at each phase of an operation and you figure the two or three things that are likely to go wrong or could go wrong, the highest probability of going wrong, and you come up with some contingencies for those, then then you'll end up with with a with a good plan, a good solid plan. I, I think uh, yeah. So I think we we naturally have a red team mindset to try and poke holes in our plans so that the enemy doesn't get to do it. Do you debrief every day? So you finish day one of the muster, first week of December, day one's done, the attendees leave the room. Do you run a debrief? And if you do, what's a debrief for you look like? We we do not run a debrief after day one. When we're at the muster, it is almost, uh, it's almost 24 hours a day for, or it's almost 48 straight hours. I mean, we get a little bit of sleep between the two days, but we go right from, from event to meeting the folks to Q and A, and we just it just it, it's a very tight schedule. We have very early morning physical training, so we don't debrief after the first day, but after the second day, then we do a debrief and we go through it by phase. You know, I started off t- talking here about the registration. We go back a little bit further than that. We talk about what the site surveys were like, and we go all all the way through the registration, the kickoff, the all the the courses that we deliver, the physical training that we do, and we go through the entire event and we try and take learning points away from each phase so that we can improve it the next time we do it. Is there a process you go through in your mind, Jocko? For example, we had a a jet fighter pilot who talked about what was the result, what was the reason, what's our response. So what do we set out to do? What happened? Why did it happen? What are we going to change? Do you have a process that Jocko runs from the teams or something that you've created yourself? Is, is there a particular process for your debrief? Yeah. I mean, like I said, we do chronological and then we look for what worked, what didn't work and what can we do to fix it? Is there a recurring, if we go to the muster, there are 48 hours, it's full on. What's the recurring theme you hear from attendees, Jocko? If there's one theme that leaders are wanting to uncover, unpack, get more information on. What's the, what's the one recurring thing you hear from the muster that's the most important issue you think facing leadership around the world at the moment? Well, the most important thing and the reason that people come to the muster is they realize that leadership is the most important thing in their organization. And regardless of what kind of problem that they're having, regardless if they're having a problem with you know, people in the wrong positions, whether they have peop- the, the portions of their company not maintaining their their P&L, whether they have processes that aren't functioning correctly, all those problems and any other problems that you have inside of an organization are leadership problems. And the sooner you come to that conclusion, 
the sooner you can actually start to resolve those problems. Because to sit around and say, well, we're, we're not doing well this quarter because the market went bad, or we're not doing well this quarter because the competitor made a move we didn't expect, or not doing well this quarter because we don't have the funding that we wanted to push out more marketing. Whatever one of those excuses, and there's a million more you can come up with, they all boil down to leadership. And, and if leadership is doing what leadership is supposed to do, lead, then they will find solutions to these problems and overcome them. So that's what we talk about. That's what the muster is. It is pragmatic solutions, pragmatic tools that people can use as leaders that will help them solve problems and move their team forward. In the dichotomy of leadership, you talk about these areas, and it's really interesting. The cover of the book is black and white, yet much of the book talks about that kind of that gray area in between, which is the dichotomy. And right at the very end of the book, you talk about micromanagement versus hands-off leadership styles or detachment. What I'm curious about is where's that sweet spot, Jocko, from empowering people to do what they do to micromanaging? Where's that, where is that sweet spot of the balance, that dichotomy? And how do I know I found that right spot? Well, it's pretty straightforward. The sweet spot is when your team is functionally functioning at its absolute maximum capacity of efficiency. Now, what's unfortunate is I can't give you the the precise the precise answer to that because with every dichotomy that there is you have to modulate constantly so if i'm working with you robo and and i'm i'm giving you direction and you're barely getting it done well guess what i might have to jump in and micro start micromanaging you more i might have to start giving you inspections once or twice a day or progress check to see where you're at and, and that's may get you on the right track where you start completing your tasks the way you're supposed to. And then as you start to complete your tasks the way you're supposed to, and you start to figure out how to discipline yourself and keep yourself on track, then I can back off more and more. And hopefully when I back off, you can continue to maintain, you know, the, the projects and getting things done on time, which is what I want. And then I can focus on someone else that's maybe not doing a good job and put some micromanagement on them. And hopefully you get to a point where you're, totally self-sufficient and I don't have to worry about you at all. But if I look down one day and I see that, oh, you haven't really completed this task the way I, I needed you to, I might have to get start, start micromanaging you a little bit more. The goal is not micromanagement because if, if I have to micromanage you and I have to put all this extra time and effort into you and checking you and inspecting you and making sure that your tasks are done, if, I, I, if I'm doing that with you and then I got to do that with my other people, I don't have time to do that. And we're not self-sufficient. So what I want to do is allow total decentralized command. You know, I want you to know and understand what the mission is and then go out on your own and get it executed. And occasionally you have to reach back to me and say, hey, uh, here's where this we're brushing up against this problem. Can you give me some help with it? Or, hey, I, I thought of a new way to do this. Do you mind if I maneuver in this direction? And I say, yeah, sounds good. Thanks for checking in. Go execute. So the answer of how do you balance all these different dichotomies is that you you find the best balance that you can and you wake up the next day and you check it because it's going to change. That's the way it is. I mean, you can get a pretty good you can get a pretty good feel for where the sweet spot is, but if you ever just forget about it, you will eventually be forced to pay attention to it again one day when you look over and see that 
things aren't running as smoothly as they should, you know it's a leadership problem, and you've probably gotten out of balance in one of the multitude of dichotomies of leadership that there are. Mate, can I just say, knowing your history and watching your videos online, if I'm working for you and you're looking over my shoulder, I'm just plain shitting myself. That's about the extent of it. Well, the actual indicator, if, 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 if you're doing something for me and I'm actually over your shoulder, then that's an indicator to you that, that you're not doing a good job. And you shouldn't get mad. And I'll probably say, hey, hey, look, man, I don't want to be here. But until I until I can watch you get this done and I want to make sure that you've gotten all the instruction you need and I want to make sure that you're comfortable because I think you can do it. But right now, the last couple results we've had haven't been what we wanted. So I want to make sure that I can see what you're doing, give you any kind of course corrections if needed, and then let you run on your own. But the reason I'm here right now is because we're not quite where we want to be, and I want to make sure I'm giving you the training and support that you need to get it done right. So yeah, if you talk to somebody that's a squared away human being that worked for me, they'll tell you I let them do whatever they want. If you talk to someone that was not squared away human being and was a slacker, they'll tell you that I was the most micromanaging person and I never let them breathe, and both those people would be correct. If you do a good job for me, I won't even bother you ever. All I'll do is clear the path for you to make things happen. But if you don't do a good job for me, I'm going to be holding your hand the entire time and I'm going to be doing it very firmly. Mate, where were you in our radio days? Seriously. Uh, (laughs) Jocko, since your last book, The Dichotomy of Leadership, are there any ideologies about leadership that have changed in your mind? Because quite often people publish a book then through doing interviews, doing the muster, people have got access to you at the muster to, to ask questions. You reflect, you hear people's stories. Have any ideologies in the last little while, last year or so, has anything changed in your mind that you would put into a new book? Well, I, I have a new book coming out and the book is called Leadership Strategy and Tactics. And what that book does is really break down the principles of leadership that we talk about in extreme ownership and in the dichotomy of leadership, but really breaks them down into a pragmatic way of saying, hey, when your boss is micromanaging you, this is how you should handle it. Hey, when you've got a team member that is not pulling their weight, here's how you should handle it. When you've got a a person with a lot of potential that has a bad attitude, here's how you should handle it. Just, I go through the list of each how to apply these principles and how to lead at a granular level. So that's the next book that I've caught coming out. The interesting thing about the question you ask, which is a good question, is the the book, The Dichotomy of Leadership, is a result of exactly what you just talked about. So Extreme Ownership came out. And the last chapter, by the way, in Extreme Ownership is called The Dichotomy of Leadership. So it's the last chapter in Extreme Ownership. But what we didn't realize is how A, important that that philosophy is, and B, how hard it is for people to grasp onto it. So, and, and part of the mistake is our fault because we named the first book Extreme Ownership. And what does that, what does that tell everyone? It tells everyone to be extreme. And that's one of the things that forced us to write the dichotomy of leadership. Not that the questions we were getting asked were about the dichotomy of leadership. It's that the answers we were giving we're all about the dichotomy of leadership. So when someone would say, you know, I'm being aggressive and and people are getting offended and I think it's because they're weak, it's like, no, you're actually being too aggressive. That's what's going on. Or, you know, I'm communicating with my team all day long, telling them what's going on and, and they don't seem to get it. 
And it's like, oh, you're actually communicating too much. You're sending them 48 emails before they show up to the office in the morning. They are not reading them. That's why they don't know what's going on. You need to balance this in the other direction. So we got, we figured this out very quickly after Extreme Ownership came out over the next year or so that we got asked question after question. And the answers to the question were, you need to balance the dichotomies of leadership. And so that's why we ended up the dichotomy of leadership. But as far as uh, new principles, no, actually the the principles that and 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 you know I I'm looking <laughs> I'm I'm hoping one day that I figure out some new principle and I'll, and I'll write a book about it. But right now, you know, the principles that that we taught and that I taught while I was still in the SEAL teams to a SEAL platoon to cover and move, simple, prioritize and execute, decentralize command, balance the dichotomies of leadership, take ownership of everything. Those are the exact same principles that we are teaching right now. And I have yet to, to have somebody say, hey, here's a new principle that we should add to the, to the book here or that we should add to the canon of information. It, it just hasn't happened yet. They all tie back into those things and, and that's the way it is. Tell me, tell me about a story that you told yourself somewhere back in the day that held you back from being your best in your own personal life, Jocko? I actually, in the new book I have coming out, I, I, I tell a story. I tell a story. I tell three stories about the first three SEAL platoons I was in. And they are all in the 90s. There's no war going on. But the very first SEAL platoon I was in, we were doing an operation. It was a training operation. And we are clearing a big oil rig, you know, a big offshore, off, offshore oil rig, you know, out in the middle of the ocean. And there are these big complex um, giant pieces of machinery that are drilling holes thousands of feet down through the ocean and into the earth. And there's high pressure valves everywhere. And they're very complex, giant structures. And we're running through this thing, clearing it or learning how to clear it, learning how to move through it and get it secure in case it had been taken over by terrorists or enemy personnel in some way, shape or form. So as we're, I'm a new guy. So as a new guy, you know, you keep your mouth shut, you keep your ears open, you don't say anything. When you do say something, you usually get told shut up. And as I'm, as we're doing this clearance, we come up onto this one level of the oil rig. And it's really the first level. It's the first full-sized level. So it's a big giant area. It's covered with machinery and equipment and there's pipes and valves and it's very complex. And because the area is so large and because it's so complex, someone in the platoon makes a call, which the call is flood. And, And what that means is everyone in the platoon is coming up and getting online facing this area. And so that's what we end up with, the whole entire platoon, which there's 16 of us in the platoon, and we're all standing shoulder to shoulder with our weapons pointed down at the threat and scanning for targets, scanning for bad guys, trying to figure out if there's anyone hiding there. And as we're standing there, I start getting a feeling like, hey, someone needs to make some kind of a call here. Someone needs to say something because we we can't just stand here. We need to move through this. And, and so I stand there and I'm, I'm waiting and, and no one makes any call. And so I, well, I'm a new guy and I don't want to say anything because I don't want to get told to shut up. So I wait a little bit longer and still no one says anything. But I'm a new guy and so I don't want to say anything. So I sit there and I wait a little bit longer and still no one says anything. And this goes on for probably, you know, like, like 
30 seconds or a minute, which was an eternity in my mind. And in a tactical situation, it actually is an eternity. You shouldn't be waiting a minute to move through a through an area. So what I do is I'm kind of curious and I think to myself, what, what's going on here? Why isn't anyone making a decision? So what I do is I, I high port my weapon, meaning I, I point my weapon kind of to the sky where I'm not going to engage anyone. And I take a step back, like literally one step back off the firing line. And I look to my left and I look to my right. And what I was really looking to see was like, is anyone looking around going to make a call? Is anyone, is anyone thinking here? And I can see the other end. I can see my platoon commander and he's staring down his weapon. And I can see my platoon chief and he's staring down his weapon. I can see my leading petty officer. He's staring down his weapon. And I can see everyone in my platoon is staring down their weapons. And meanwhile, me looking around, I can see everything. I can see the, the best way to move through this level. I can see who should move where. And so in a moment of, um, let's call it, let's call it naive naive moment of clarity as a new guy i made a call and i said hold left clear right which was a standard call and when i made that call instead of getting told to shut up which is kind of what i expected instead everyone repeated the command which is what you're supposed to do when you hear a verbal command everyone repeated the command and then everyone actually did what i had say, said to do they held left and cleared to the right and when i saw that I realized that by stepping back and by detaching from the situation, from detaching from the tactical situation, detaching from staring down my weapon and just looking around, I was able to see infinitely more than even the most experienced guys in my platoon. And I was able to make a good call, a good tactical call, because I had detached, stepped back and absorbed and looked around. And that, at that moment, I said to myself, I am going to do this every chance I get from here on out in every tactical situation I get in, whether I'm in land warfare, traveling through the desert or jungle warfare, going through the jungle. And we, we start uh, doing an immediate action drill, shooting live rounds. Instead of me staring down my gun the whole time, trying to engage targets, I'm actually going to look around. And then what I started doing is I started doing that when I was even having conversations with people. And if I was talking to someone and the conversation was getting heated because they disagreed or we disagreed about something, instead of sitting there staring at them and getting angry, I would take a step back mentally and think to myself, oh, what would be the best way to get them on my side? What would maybe actually, why am I even holding holding firm with my argument. Maybe I should actually just listen to what they're saying. Maybe they have a better point than me. Maybe this is my ego talking. And the more I began to detach from my emotions, from my ego, and even from the physical surroundings by taking a step back, I got better and better at assessing myself and making good decisions. And so that really changed my trajectory as a, as a human being because I realized that detaching from your ego, detaching from your emotions, not getting caught up in the chaos and mayhem was a better way to lead and a better way to make decisions for yourself as a person. Jocko, that detachment emotionally from a situation, can that sometimes cause friction at home with your relationship with, with your wife, Helen, and the kids? 
Is that something you've got to be conscious of? Because earlier in the in the conversation, you talked about identity as the character of Sean McFarlane, that you use the word character. Is that detachment something you have to be conscious of at home, not to bring that situational awareness and how you deal with it into the home with emotions involved? No, actually, I don't have to be careful with it at all. In fact, what I have to do at home is the same thing I have to do at work, is the same thing I have to do in a SEAL platoon, is the same thing I have to do in combat, is the same thing I have to do anywhere, which is balance the dichotomy. Because when I talk about detaching and and stepping away from your emotions, I'm not talking about stepping away so far that you don't have any emotions. Because if you're in a leadership position and you don't show any emotions and your your team thinks you have no emotions, they're not going to connect with you. They're not going to follow you. You're not a good leader. If you come home to your wife and kids and you don't show any emotions, guess what? You're not going to connect with them. And that relation, those relationships are not going to go well. So this idea of, of detaching, just like any other characteristic of a leader, can be taken to the extreme. And if it's taken to the extreme, it is going to be, it is going to have and turn into a negative. And I actually talk about this again, this is in my new book. I talk about this, this kind of procedure that I use and I call it reflect and diminish. And what this means is Gary, if Gary comes to me and he's got a problem going on and he comes to me and he says, Hey Jocko, the supply department hasn't delivered the goods yet. And he's mad. Well, if I look at him and I say in a totally detached voice, Gary, you need to calm down. What does that do to Gary? Immediately, Gary becomes, he gets even more mad because I've, I've, I've separated myself from him. Now I'm on the team, I'm on team supply over here and he's mad because I'm not giving him the support that he needs. So to come across as being completely emotionless is a bad deal if someone is very emotional. So what I do is I'm going to reflect a little bit of his emotion but then I'm going to diminish it as well. I'm going to bring it down a notch so we can start having a normal conversation. So instead of saying, calm down, Gary, I'm going to say, oh, Gary, you got to be kidding me. How late are they? And, and so he sees that I'm a little bit mad too. And then he says, they're two weeks late. And I say, oh, that's ridiculous. We got to get that thing fixed. We got to get that squared away. Hey, what can we do to get this problem solved right now? So now I'm on his side. And now we can actually work through the procedures of solving the problem at hand and get the emotions set aside so we can move forward. So yes, you're correct. You, you can't just walk around with no emotions. And if you do that, you're not going to have a good team and a good connection with your team, either at family or at work. So what you have to do is you have to balance those. It's interesting, Jocko. I, I heard you say that you joined the SEAL teams because in your mind, you believed it was the hardest of the hard. How far back can you remember as a kid or a man having a desire to take on the hardest things? Ever since I remember wanting to do anything of any kind as a, as a, you know, when I, as a person, as a grown up, as a, as a, as a kid, when I looked at my future and, and wanted to figure out what I wanted to do for a living, the only thing that I ever remember actually wanting to do was to be some kind of commando, some kind of soldier, and go to war. That's the only thing I remember. And and so if then then it just boiled down to me learning about the various branches of service 
and figuring out which one I would actually join. And eventually I figured out when I, when I was a kid, there wasn't, the seals were, were relatively unknown and I got pretty lucky in hearing about them. I heard about them from a friend that was in the army and he had heard that the toughest training and the toughest guys were in the seal teams. And that's not true. I mean, there's tough guys in every branch. There's tougher training in every branch, but that's what I heard. And as a young kid, that was enough for me. And that's why, that's why I tried to go for the SEAL teams. I've heard you say that your dad never let you quit anything, anything. And the way you said it was anything ever. Tell me about the influence your dad had on your thinking and your mindset. I think if there was, my dad was a pretty, I'll say lenient guy. You know, he's pretty hands off, but he definitely did not accept quitting and if you were to quit something, it was going to not be good. Um, I remember I was playing a soccer game one time and my father, for some reason, I was young and my father, for some reason, had had to substitute as the coach for the team. And I got hit in the face with a soccer ball and the right in the face and it hurt my nose and my nose was bleeding everywhere. And my, I kind of ran over to the sideline as if my dad was going to take me out of the game because I was bleeding profusely from the face. And he just looked at me as if to say, what, what are you doing over here? You know, go tackle that ball. And I said, oh, I guess I'm going to tackle that ball. So yeah, don't quit. What would your kids say about you? Say they go to school, they've got to stand up in front of their class and say, describe your dad. What was Jocko's kids say about Jocko, do you reckon? Well, I have four kids. And I'm sure they would all say, uh, my dad works hard and he's nice to us. And they'd probably say something along those lines they're not, you know, no one in my family, and this includes my entire family, my, my parents, my, my, I have two sisters, includes them. It just includes my kids, my wife. No, no one's super impressed with anything over here. You know, they wouldn't say like, oh, my dad does this or my dad does that. They say my dad works hard and, and he's, and he's a nice guy. I've heard both you and Leif talk about this statement that there is no growth in the comfort zone. Do you today still seek out discomfort, Jocko? Yeah, of course. Is bow hunting, which it's fascinating. I was talking to a guy called Ryan Munsey, who you may or may not know, who runs the Better Human Project, used to work at Natural Stacks, and he... I was talking to him on the phone the other day from California and he said, I've just taken up bow hunting. And he talked about the impact that people like Joe Rogan and you and these guys. And then I heard you talk with Cameron Haynes who said where you're at with your bow hunting in just 12 odd months to the success you're having is unprecedented. Is that something where you see that as a new technique and new skill and step into the discomfort of not knowing anything about it, but wanting to be good? Yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's an awesome sport. It's an awesome challenge. Um, you know, it's interesting when, when Cam says something like that about me, it's, 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 I mean, I have literally had the best possible opportunities. So <laughs> it's, it's awesome. And I appreciate Cam saying something like that, but Literally, I've, I've had, and I know people throw the term literally around a lot, but I have, have literally had the best possible coaches, uh, mentors, equipment. I've had everything 
just just given to me and it's been unbelievable and then and then even you know the the hunt that i was on with with cam and joe and john and andy i mean great guys you know between cam and, and john dudley those two guys are you know some of the premier hunters in the entire world and you know i'm out there with them so and john personally coaching me on my on my on my shooting so uh it's awesome and is it a challenge? Yes, it is a hard, hard, hard sport. It's a hard thing to do, and um, but it's cool. It takes discipline. You got to get the reps in, and it also the one of the things that I really like about it is it reminds me a lot of my old, old job. And like I said, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be some kind of commando. And then when I grew up, I never, I, I got to be a commando, and I never, you know, when I was a little kid, I played army, and when I got older, I kept playing army. <laughs> And, and it, and it wasn't really until I retired from the Navy that all of a sudden I didn't have that anymore. And so this kind of brings it back. I'm going out on patrols. I'm with my friends. I'm trying to, trying to do something tactical to sneak up on someone and, and kill them. So yeah, it's, it's awesome. I love doing it. And I'm, I'm super appreciative of all those guys that have helped me out. You know, John Dudley literally flew to San Diego, custom built me a bow, gave it to me and taught me how to shoot. And that's, you know, incredible. And luckily he's, he's a very, uh, giving guy and he makes everything that he's taught me. He's taught thousands and thousands of people for free on his YouTube channel. So it's an incredible, uh, experience to have and definitely recommend if anybody is looking for another hobby, give that one a shot. <laughs> Matt, I would, re- I would suggest that possibly bow hunting, the, the, the extra reward on, uh, as opposed to being a Navy SEAL would be deer stew at the end of the day too, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, just, just the fact that I've got hundreds of pounds of the best meat in the world, elk yeah. meat, uh, in my freezer, going to last me, you know, probably m- several, probably half a year. And uh, that's pretty awesome. Yes, that's a bonus. So you're thinking you should bring some to Australia and we'll stop the barbecue in Sydney while he's here. And is that, is that, is that where you're going? Well, I was going to suggest that, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking Bondi Beach, barbecue, few beers, bit of elk meat. I'm, I'm in. I'm, and an esky. Yeah, I'm there. Absolutely. Well, why don't we just go hunt something down there? <laughs> I got, we, we got roo hunting on my place. Don't have to ask us twice. Uh, Jocko, just a couple of things before we let you go. I'm very conscious of your time. When I talk to people who have served their country the way you have and then return to civilian life, so many who had all that discipline and had their day, their week, their month planned, the military, come back into civilian life and fall into darkness. And one of your brothers who actually introduced us to get you on the show today, JP Donnell, he went to that place, but then you and Leif, were able to turn things around for him. And now he, he's shining brighter than ever. What, for, there are people listening to the show who are either in that darkness or things are quite dim for them. What's missing for them that in hindsight you brought to JP that helps people to turn things around and start to find the light? You need a new mission. It's as simple as that. You need a new mission. You, you, when you're in the military, like you said, you have a mission. It's the best mission in the world. It's the, it's the pinnacle of all missions in the world. And when you leave the military, you don't have that mission anymore. And so what happens to guys that 
can't find a new mission or don't find a new mission, they start to wander around and they get into trouble. They find what what do they find when they're wandering around? They find booze, they find pills, they find bad relationships, they find problems. And all they need really is to figure out what their new mission is going to be, whether that's getting into bow hunting, whether that's working a job, whether that's being a great dad, whether that's starting jujitsu, it doesn't matter what it is, but find a new mission and do your best at it. And that right there to me is the most important thing that, that people can do. And we, you know, I didn't pull JP out of a dark place. JP did, you know, I just said, Hey, here's the new mission. You got to do this and you got to do this well. And he was like, Oh, Roger that. And you know, this is what JP did for me on the battlefield. Like this is what he did. Hey, JP, it didn't matter what the mission was. Hey, JP, this is what you need to do. Roger that. So all that, all the same thing here. Now we're in the civilian life. JP, here's the mission. And he's going to knock it out of the park. And that's exactly what he's doing without question. I think it was Tim Ferriss who asked you the question about when you think of success, what do you think of? And you talked about Ryan Job, Mark Lee, Michael Monsoor, your friends, your teammates, your brothers who died in combat. And the word you said was, they, they are your heroes. Chucka, in a quiet moment when there's no one around, when you think of those men, what do, what do you say to them? Thank you. To finish us up, you grew up on hardcore heavy rock, which is very much our show. You grew up on Black Sabbath, White Buffalo. Oh, yes. If there was a song that we could play that represents everything that Jocko is, what's the song that we would play that resonates the most with you deep down in your hardcore heavy rock soul? Maybe Motorhead, Death or Glory. The man's got good taste in music, I can say that much. Yeah, that album's a surprise. You know, it's Motorhead has album after album after album after album that's epic albums, but... Yeah, the the fact that they were still putting out kind of really truly epic songs on that album, which uh, I believe was called Bastards, was is incredible. There's not too many bands that do multiple albums in a row. You know, I always look at the number five. Not too many bands that can do five albums in a row that are really truly epic. You know, you got Black Sabbath, ACDC, Led Zeppelin, um, Motorhead. Those are kind of Metallica, possibly. But yeah, the uh, the barracks. Whenever we talk to Navy Seal, ex Navy Seals, you guys always have the most sort of hard rock musical tastes that I've come across. In terms of a group of guys coming from the same sort of background, the barracks must have been rocking. So when I got to SEAL Team One in 1991, there was a. You guys remember the 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 CD five disc cd automatic changers yeah, yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> so stereo system yeah. the stereo system in the gym at seal team one was it was locked shut it was they couldn't open it it was a <laughs> it was just playing and, and it was it had the five uh, metallic albums in it and that was just played 24 hours a day nice it was awesome Nice. God forbid anyone play some Kylie Minogue, I'm sure. I don't even know what that is, but <laughs> I'm sure it sucks. 
Lollipop, lollipop, pop. You're famous for the saying, discipline equals freedom. And as a throwaway, Leif said, there's actually a dichotomy in that simple statement. It's such a profound, powerful statement. You're recognised for it. It has a life of its own. Just describe that, that point in there, that dichotomy and the beauty in that statement. Well, the dichotomy is you can actually apply so much discipline to a team that they stop thinking, right? If you give, if you, you can apply so many standard operating procedures and so many processes to your troops that they don't think for themselves. And if you end up with people that don't think for themselves, well, then they don't have any freedom at all. So every dichotomy that there is, every good characteristic that you can think of, because being disciplined is certainly a good characteristic, absolutely. But when you apply it to a team or you apply it with too much to yourself, then it can be a problem. You know, if, if you, uh, you know, I always talk about the balance with family and work, right? And people say, how do you balance it? And I say, you balance it. That's what you do. So if you're so highly disciplined that you focus all your time on work and you're working 20 hours a day, and the reason you're doing that is because you want to take good care of your family. You want to be able to provide for them financially. That's great. You're going to make a lot of money, but guess what? You look up and you don't have a family anymore because they bailed. So you have to be balanced. Um, and then the other the same goes in the other direction. If you want to provide for your family because you care about your family so much and you care about your family so much that you start not working overtime and, and leaving work early because you have a dance recital to go to or a ball game for your kid and all of a sudden you look up and you don't get promoted or maybe you even get fired because you, you aren't really the front-running worker at the team, well, then that's going to be a problem as well. So where do you need to be? You need to be ba- balanced. And it's the same thing with discipline. Now, the reason that discipline equals freedom is the reason that people find the statement useful is because a vast, vast, vast majority of people aren't at the point where they have too much discipline. They're at a point where they have too little discipline and they, they end up without freedom and everyone wants freedom. And in order to have freedom, what do they do? They, they try and act free. Well, when you act free and you do whatever you want to do, when you look up in a year or six months or two years, you don't have any freedom anymore. You're a slave. You're a slave because you're you're financially committed to someone else. You're a slave because you don't have the time that you want because you have to dedicate it to doing all these other things. It's It becomes a real problem. So if you want freedom in your life and even physically, right? I mean, physically, if you're if you don't work out, if you don't have the discipline to work out, if you don't have the discipline to eat healthy, you won't have the freedom to move. You'll, you'll literally be constricted on being able to run and jump and, and, and you know, go surfing or do jujitsu or do things that you want to do because you lack the discipline. You, li- you lose that freedom if you, if you lack discipline. So discipline, yes, absolutely gives you freedom. And, you know, when people, there was a time where one day I, I posted, I have social media and I posted like, I, worked out in the morning and I took a picture of the weights and then I went surfing and I took a picture of the waves and I went and did jujitsu and I took a picture of, you know, the jujitsu mats. And then I went and like ate lunch or something. And I posted like these pictures of, of working out and surfing and doing jujitsu and eating a nice lunch. And, And somebody said something along the lines of, you know, well, you know, gee, that must be nice to be able to do all that all day long. And, and when I read that comment, I actually felt bad. I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm kind of a, I'm, I'm a jerk, you know, like I'm, here's, here's somebody who's probably out working some, uh, menial 
low wage job, busting his ass. And here I am surfing and doing jujitsu all day. And I, and I felt bad about it. I was like, you know, I'm not going to post this kind of stuff anymore. And, and then someone else on there responded with my own quote and said, discipline equals freedom to that guy. And, and I said to myself, yeah, you know, that's, that's the whole point. That's the correct answer. The correct answer is like the reason I'm able to do these things right now is because I, I work really hard and I've been working hard for a long, long time and I'm going to continue to work hard. And when you see, you know, when you see some, when I see someone that's got that kind of freedom in their life, I don't assume that they haven't worked hard for it. I, I assume that they've busted their ass and made tough decisions and taken risks and, and sacrificed greatly in some areas to be, to make achievements in other areas. I get that. And, and so, yeah, I don't get jealous of other people. I'm, I'm happy when I see someone kicking ass and, you know, when I post something like that, I don't feel guilty about it because I know that I actually, there's a reason for it. And the reason is discipline equals freedom. Speaking of kicking ass, you are going to be in Australia on December 4 and 5 in Sydney for the muster. What do we need to know, Jocko? Anything you want to add about that event? Everyone that comes to the muster says it's the best event that they have ever been to. Even the hotels, when we go to a hotel, <laughs> the hotel will say, they'll say, we have never had an event where the event starts, the doors, o- the doors open at 7.45. There are people lined up ready to come in at 6.45. <laughs> They're there an hour early. They say, we never see this for any events that we ever do, ever. And that's what we see. What are you guys doing? What are you teaching? And you know, we explain to them, this is what we're teaching. And the same thing with the people that are there. And, and what's what's the best thing about it is when we we have people that come to two, three, four musters, and when they come, they say, this is what I've done. Here's where I've gone. Here's what the business has done. Here's the change I've made. Here's where I've been, here's where I've been promoted. Here's where my my wife is now happy about this, and we're back together, whatever the case may be. It's awesome. And that's the real reward. And And when you asked earlier about the mission of the muster, the mission of the muster is for us to share the principles of leadership that we learned on the battlefield that these people can apply not only to their business, but to their life as well. And this isn't, this isn't a big motivation, feel good. It's actually none of that. It's not about that at all. It's leadership tools. That's what this event is about. It's learning how to lead and whatever you do. You're a leader in your family, you're a leader at work, you're a leader in your business, you're a leader in your teams, you're a leader with your friends. So leadership applies to everything you do. That's what this is about. It's what makes the difference in people's lives and that's why we do it. You know, something else I found very, very legit about this event, Jocko, was that there is a massive, almost half off service discount for anybody who is an active duty military, law enforcement, firefighters, first responders. And our country here in Australia is going through its worst fires in history. And we have 70 odd fires in New South Wales alone, which are going right now. There are thousands of first responders, firefighters all over Australia right now fighting fires as we speak. And they're doing it as volunteers. I just think it's incredible, you guys. And it just shows that it's not about money. It's about doing the right thing and to have a massive discount for people who are serving in whatever way. I, I just think it's it's really legit. Well, we absolutely have a connection with the with the military and with first responders of all kinds, police, law enforcement, um, 
medics, firefighters. You know, one of the first people that taught me field craft in the SEAL teams at SEAL Team One was an Australian SAS guy that was over on exchange. And, and I'll never forget the guy. He taught me a ton of stuff. I have a very good friend that was the next exchange guy. So we have some good connections. You know, we spent a lot of time. I didn't personally in Afghanistan, but we have a lot of guys that worked with Aussies overseas. So, you know, our history goes back as an, as two nations, you know, back to, to World War One, And so it's 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 an honor for us to offer those those discounts if needed for for military police and firefighters and first responders for sure Jocko, i know our time is up it's been a real privilege being able to interview you 6 years ago or 6 seasons ago when we started the show i remember now in one of the very first episodes we did somebody said who would you like to interview and i said Jocko. We've done it. I thank you for your time. It's been a true privilege. Uh, we hope to see you here in Australia. Our offer to meet with you at Bondi Beach with some cold drinks in an esky. <laughs> and I can't promise elk, but we probably could organise a barbecue. If you have a moment in your program, we will meet you at Bondi on the promenade and we will record with you in life. Awesome, man. That sounds good. We couldn't <laughs> organise elk, but we could certainly organise some fish and chips, I reckon. <laughs> right on. I could bring some grass-fed beef from my place. I could, I could actually, I live on a farm and we raise our own grass-fed native pasture-finished beef jocko. I'd be happy to bring you some down to see how it stacks up. I, I, that sounds really good. I was over in, uh, I was in Brisbane for a while and I had some of the, some outstanding steaks, outstanding steaks. Yes, I'd be down for that. Did you go to the Story Bridge Hotel? Is that the one you went to? I don't know. Uh, I can't recall the names. All I know is I had tomahawk ribeye Three nights in a row. Oh, nice! Those <laughs> Brisbane, Gary and Gary and my old stomping ground in our radio days. So I know Brisbane well. Right on. No, it was a great city. It's funny, Robbo. I remember Tim Ferriss saying to Jocko, "So, um, your diet? What's that look like?" And Jocko said, "It looks a lot like it looks a lot like steak." <laughs> <laughs> a man after my own heart. <laughs> Before we wrap up. Uh, details for the muster. It's in Sydney and it's muster number 009, December 4th and 5th, Sydney, Australia. I will put a link to it in the show notes or if you go to Echelon Front uh, or Google Echelon Front muster 9 Sydney, you'll find it pretty easily and there is a website there you can buy tickets from. Echelon is E-C-H-E-L-O-N Front. Go in. It's, it's actually really easy to find, but I will put a link to it in the show notes as well. All right, guys. Good talking to you. Hi, I'm Maria Gronberg. I'm a climber. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro four times and summited Mount Everest this year of May. Oh, man, I'm struggling through the Mojo Show. The Mojo Radio Show. We talk about authenticity on this show a lot. And as someone who listens to voices for a living, there's a thing in every interview that you and I talk about where the guests drop their shoulders and you actually get a glimpse into who they really are as opposed to the facade. I heard Jocko drop his shoulders in that interview, yet everything he did, everything he said, the way he presented himself remained exactly the same. And when you talk about authenticity, I'm no expert, but to me, 
that would suggest that this guy is 100% authentic. Yeah, it's a good observation. I heard Cameron Haynes or John Dudley was on Joe Rogan just recently and they talked about that that trip away, uh, elk hunting, bow hunting. Mm. And they talked about the discussion they had across the campfire and they, amongst them, were discussing how tomorrow's going to be a big day. A lot of hiking, hard terrain, tracking elk, the whole thing. And Jocko said, awesome, let's go. And they said he's exactly the same yeah. away from the show, away from the echelon front, away. He's just, that's just how he is in everything he does. There's no on switch and off switch. And there's that saying, how you do anything is how you do everything. And he is that guy. And it was such a privilege to be able to ask him all the things. And I said, I said to him before we started recording, uh, six years ago, somebody said, who would you love to interview? <laughs> and I said, Jocko, back then I, I would not have felt comfortable doing it. Today I feel privileged and honoured to be able to spend time with him on the, on the line. And he is exactly as I thought he would be, only I think he, he felt like he did relax into the interview and I think he... Um, I don't know. It's, I, I thought it was a complete honour. Killer. Absolute killer. Um, quick question, though. Now we've had him on, can we take his poster down off the wall and replace that with someone else? <laughs> Who's the next target? Negative Ghost Rider. Well, we, uh, we do have Leif's coming up next week. Leif Babin, who is the co-author of Dichotomy of Leadership and Extreme Ownership and a partner in Echelon Front. So we've got loads. I mean, honestly, the lineup is just ridiculously good of mm. who we've got coming up over the next coming months. So, um, and thanks again to JP Donnell for getting in touch to say, hey, Jocko is coming to Australia. Why don't you interview him? And that was just, and Jamie for hooking it up. It's just. Uh, I can, can, I, can, I just, can I just relate one quick story? The, 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 when I found out that we had Jocko on the show, all I got was an email from Gary saying, we got Jocko as the subject line. That was it. (laughs) As they say in the classics, nuff said. Yes, (laughs) mic drop. The Mojo Radio Show. So a couple of weeks ago, just to fill you in, the last week of Rocktober, Gary and I had a discussion about rock songs that contained cowbell which sparked the conversation about creating on Spotify the ultimate cowbell song playlist. So I've been on Spotify. I've been through all the ones I can possibly think of. Now we're handing it over to you guys, our listeners, because we want to make this the place that everybody goes if you want to know a song's got cowbell in it. So go to our Facebook page. I've pinned a link to the playlist at the top of our Facebook page and you can add songs as you think of them or if you, if, if you can see any that I've missed. Let's make this the ultimate playlist of cowbell songs ever. Gold. This is the Mojo Radio Show. So I guess we should play out with something heavy, hardcore rock and roll that's very yeah. much us. I'm just not sure of the track. Okay, well... Since Jocko's a bit of a metal fan, we've already played Motorhead back in the interview. How about a bit of Iron Maiden? Does that we've we've never done that on the Mojo show before? We've never played any Maiden. I I think we've mentioned them. I don't think we've ever played yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, so this would be Maiden's Maiden appearance. Maiden Maiden. What track are you thinking? Well, you know, let's keep it fairly well known. How about Lola? Hit up Run to the Hills. Iron Maiden. We're out.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.